I, I, I had taught another Tanya class yesterday. And you can't remember. They don't remember where, where we left off. And we went past where we went. So I don't remember, did we discuss Job yesterday? We were in it. We were, we were in it. Okay. Discussing. See, that's what I was. I was do we do we start it? Do we finish it? I wasn't. I got confused because. Okay. We ran out of time. All right. So let's 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 go back to Job. Good old Job. Okay. So, Job, also known in his Hebrew as Eov, he makes a claim, and he says like this. Now, this is actually also just for background. The Book of Job is a book of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. How many books are there in the Hebrew Bible? No. Those are the five books of Moshe. But that's the, oh, that's only the t- of the Tanakh. That's the Torah part. We want the, also the Nach part too. Like 24? There are 24. There are 24. Okay. There are 24. Um, they're broken into, they're broken into, they're broken into the Torah, which are the five books of Moshe. What makes them special is that all the mitzvahs are there. There's no mitzvahs anywhere else. Then you have the Nevi'im, the prophets, and what makes those special is that they were said with full-on biblical-style prophecy, which is you know, very intense. But then you have what are called the Ksuvim, the writings, which were, which were divinely inspired. So it's like a more minor form of prophecy. So one of the books, the writings, is the book of Eve, the book of Job. Job suffers a lot. He has a lot of arguments with his friends, with God. You're not allowed to have favorite books of the Tanakh, by the way. It's forbidden. But if it wasn't forbidden, it would be my favorite. <laughs> Why? Why? It's the only overtly theological book in the Tanakh. Like, where people are, like, discussing why God does things. and like. Why are you not allowed to have a favorite? Because it's all God's wisdom. Who are you entitled? Who are you to say that this one's better than that? It doesn't mean it's better. It means you click with it more, No. It says that about mitzvahs, interestingly, that you can have favorite mitzvahs, you but, can you can't, but not about Torah. I don't, I'm not sure why the difference exists, but it does say that. Where does it say? It's a Gemara. You can't say Shmua Zum Noah. This one, this, this is a beautiful teaching. I really like this teaching. Okay. Um, so, in the Gemara, the Talmud, it elaborates on the verses in the Tanakh. And so in the Gemara in Baba Basra, chapter 1, it elaborates on one of the things that Job says, and it says that he's making an argument to God that you created righteous men, thou hast created wicked men, or that thou hast. Now, the Alter Rebbe understands from the Gemara over there that the Gemara accepts that Job's argument is in principally valid, or at least this element of it. It's a more complicated argument, and ultimately his flaws with it, but this specific part, this premise in his whole argument that God creates wicked people and God creates righteous people, Job was correct when he said that. And the problem is that would seemingly violate a well-known Talmudic teaching, which is that the only thing that is not preordained about a person is whether they are righteous or whether they are wicked. That's the only thing about you that's not preordained. You're giving me a look. I'm just thinking about what else. All the other parts. Yeah. You don't mean Tzadik or Russia. Tzadik or Russia. But it is ordained. Well, that's why we have a question. Because Job says God creates righteous people, God creates wicked people. And we have another teaching in the Talmud that says that the only thing that's not preordained is whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked, whether you're a Tzadik or you're a Russia. So those things need to be reconciled. Yeah. Now, clearly, we're going to have to be doing some uh, careful interpreting one or both of those teachings in order to get them not to contradict. 
just for further elaboration. Um, sometimes ideas are very abstract and I, I find it easier to project them in comic form. Like, so in my mind, the way this works is that there's a little assembly line as your soul is coming down onto earth. You know, like in a factory, and like there's little stations and each station has an angel with like a, you ever go to like a, in Israel, you know, you get, your gla- you get um, glasses and they do your prescription, they have those things where they spin around the different wheels. Right, so in Israel they don't have those. In Israel, they have a tray of different, of different lenses. And they start pulling out lenses and sticking them in and taking them out. Um, world fashioned. And it, so there's an angel with a, with a tray of little, basically, stamps. And they're arranged from right to left. So on right is filthy rich. And on the left is, not poor, absolute destitute, destitute. like, you know, war-torn you know, Central African country. And then a range in between. And then every soul that comes down a little as a station, he takes out one of the stamps and gets his instruction from God. He's like, okay, and stamps that soul. And that's that soul's financial destiny. And then the soul moves along. And then there's one, an angel in charge of intelligence. And there's a range of stamps, right, absolutely brilliant, left, how do we say this in a politically correct way? Less than brilliant. Intellectually disabled. Intellectually gifted. <laughs> <laughs> And they stamp it. Yeah. This is all my comic version of a more abstract no, idea. No, I just mean, uh, like, is that for when the person's born, or like what their end? So that's that's basically that's basically stamping out their entire life story when it's regard to that issue. That's more complicated. We want to just. Fixed rich or fixed poor, that, that can change. Right? And then the same thing, and included in that is who you marry, and there's a whole conversation of what who you marry is predetermined. We're not going to get into that. Everything. There's an angel with each thing, and uh, you get stamped. Now, God can do miracles, right? The same way God can have the angel stamp, you can get unstamped, miracles can happen, but that's a good story. But there's no angel, and this is what it says there's no angel in charge of stamping you righteous or wicked. That's left up to you. Okay? And so what this means is that in creating your life as it comes down from God, the one thing that God is completely hands-off about, at least from that teaching, is whether you're a tzaddik or whether you're a rasha. And so that seems to fly in the face of the idea that God is decreeing and creating people in such a way that they are righteous or a tzaddik or they're a rasha. Okay. Now, the next pit, we're going to talk about that middle person. Do you remember how we say the middle person in Hebrew? Bainani. Okay. So what we know about a Bainani so far is they're not motivated solely by either inclination, right? They're motivated by both. We also know that Rabbah thought he was a Bainani, but he was wrong. But we all, and we know that Rabbah's level of righteousness was, was phenomenally great that... Um, if that's the standard of not being wicked, it makes it impossible for anyone to live up to that standard. Okay. Fine. So we're at the paragraph, it is also necessary to understand. It is also necessary to understand the essential rank, essential nature of the rank of the intermediate, the Bainani. Surely that cannot mean one whose deeds are half virtuous and half sinful. For if this were so, how could Rabbi Aaron classify himself as a Bainani? Now, there's a rule about mistakes. There are what are called legitimate mistakes and illegitimate mistakes. 
What makes a mistake legitimate versus illegitimate? Well, if you do something wrong intentionally, like that's not a mistake. That's just like you know, malicious. Is it not a mistake? Is it regret? Well, that's after the fact. Does a mistake have to be defined before it happens? Yeah, a mistake is like I mean, so, yeah, what mistake means like you did something or thought something or understood something or said something wrong, but you didn't intend for it to be wrong. Like that's what I mean. I made a mistake. If I knew it was wrong, I wouldn't have done it. I feel like. Like an illegitimate mistake is like you really should have known better. You should have known better. Like you didn't know better, but you should have known better. Ah, so that's actually so. Parenthetical, not to this. There's a very important thing. Is there? There's a rule, which is that there's something called intentional sins and unintentional sins. Unintentional sins are not as bad as intentional sins, as a general rule. That would make sense. Okay. So here's the rule. If you are a scholarly person, you're what's called in Hebrew Talmud Chacham, you study Torah, you know how to learn Torah, and you sin unintentionally because you didn't know the correct halacha, you know what that's considered? An intentional sin. Because why don't you know the correct halacha? Because you are sloppy with your studies, and you should have known better. Now what happens if you are an uneducated person? And you kind of think you remember hearing that was wrong, but you're not sure, you decide just to go ahead anyway. So it's like intentional. But then we count that as unintentional because since you didn't really get a full education, like, like a person can't like be uptight the whole life anyway. So what, interestingly enough is that what counts as a legitimate mistake also depends on who's making the mistake. Saying I didn't know that was forbidden is a legitimate excuse for one person and not a legitimate excuse for another person. Yeah. So back to Rabbah. If Rabbah thinks that he's a Bainani and he's wrong, would Rabbah make an illegitimate mistake or a legitimate mistake? What? Illegitimate. illegitimate mistake? Like Rabbah just like, there's one good point there, Rabbah says, you know, I think I'm a Bainani. Why? I don't know. I didn't put much thought into it. Let's just go with that. That's how Rabbah lived his life? Or did Rabbah put some thought into the idea of what's a Bainani, what's a Tzadik? He said, you know what? After some careful consideration, I think I'm a Bainani. And he overlooks something, overlooks something. Which one sounds more plausible? Especially if we're st- holding up Rabbah as this great person. The latter. Okay. Now, this is very important because a lot of times we speak about righteous people and we ask, can they do something wrong? Can they not do something wrong? On a very basic level, there's two kinds of wrong. There's doing something wrong where you know it's wrong. There's doing something wrong that you should have known better. And there's doing something wrong that you, le- like, you legitimately thought it was right and like, there wasn't much you could have done to know better, but like, you would happen to be mistaken. Really, there's three types. Right. But in terms of mistake, there's only two. Because the first one, when you know it's wrong, do it anyways. That's just, like I said, malicious. That's evil. Okay. Uh, it's like you could give advice that you really think is going to help somebody, and it's worked in the past, but it happens to be unbeknownst to you. It doesn't work in the situation. It's a legitimate mistake. I'm not a bad person. Okay. So that means that the difference between a tzaddik and a bainani has to be what? A big, obvious difference or a subtle difference? Subtle difference. Because if the big obvious difference, then it's not a legitimate mistake. Okay. And that also means that we have to know a lot about Rabbah's character. Because that character has to be at least superficially hard to tell which one is it. Okay. Well, what do we know about Rabbah? For it is known that he never ceased the study of Torah so much that the angel of death could not overpower him. 
How then could he errs that half of his deeds were sinful, God forbid? Okay, so we're saying this. Rab is a person who looks at himself and concludes that he's a baini. What is one piece of evidence that he's using to think that he's a baini? Like he's, he's taking an honest examination of himself. What's something that's known about him? He would certainly know it about himself. What? He never ceased studying Torah. And how holy was his Torah? Right. I'm sure if I never ceased studying Torah, that wouldn't prevent me from dying. But there's a qualitative element here, right? Now, if he knows that, yeah, then when he says I'm a baini, he clearly is not thinking, oh, I'm a person who sins about half the time. Because he, he knows that he studies Torah all the time. He knows how holy his Torah is. So he clearly thinks that, that fits into the definition of Bainani. Yeah. Shouldn't he be saying he's a Russia? Maybe. But we'll find out about that in later chapters. It's a good question. And when we have the when we have more information it will resolve itself. But if you're saying about him sending off the time, that's not what a Bainani is. Well no, that the altar is reversed. The altar is using this to prove that can't be a Bainani. Why are we assuming that Abaye is right and Rabba is wrong? Mm, that is a very good question. That is a very good question. Um, so, for our purposes, we actually don't need to assume that he's right. We just have to assume the dispute is legitimate. In other words, we have to dispute that Rabbah had a good reason for thinking that he's a Baini, and Abai has a good reason for thinking that he's not a Baini, which is enough to make this work. Now, if I take into account other things from other sources that I know, then I would probably conclude that Rabbah is making a mistake. And that's why it's written this way. But the argument works either way, because anytime we have a dispute amongst the Talmudic sages, the underlying assumption is that the dispute has to be legitimate. There has to be, and that's both points of view had to be valid. If Rabbah thinks he's a Bainani, he had to have good reason for thinking he's a Bainani. If Abai thinks he's not a Bainani, he has to have good reason for thinking he's not a Bainani. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So okay. that's enough for this. Um, the, the, the other piece of information that we happen to have is that um, Rabbah was basically equated with emotion in his generation. And so that would kind of make it a little bit awkward um, in other words, if you want to th- if you just go through Jewish history, you have like Moshe, you have Mordechai. So in the generation Rabbah lived, he had that same station and status amongst the Jewish people. So it would be a really ridiculous <laughs> to say that he's like, he's the one who just made, he's the example of someone who just made the basic level of standards. Okay. Did, we, did we ever explain why Benoni is the basic standard? Because what is, Russia is wicked. Wicked mm-hmm. is clearly not a good thing. Right. So anything beyond wicked okay. is already like the bare minimum, right? Like if just to go with the basic meaning of the words, right? It's you have an oath not to be wicked. So once you get beyond wicked, you're ready. And we did. Did we ever have like a conclusive answer to like if Benoni could be a range? Nope. Okay. Nope. That's an open question. We don't. We don't. Right now, all we're doing is trying to show that a bane doesn't mean half. That just because it says you're motivated half by the good and half by the evil inclination means that you're actually, that translates into your behavior. Right? Now this is important, because what that means is that internally, what do we now know about Abedini? Both their good and evil inclination are motivating forces. When it comes to their behavior, it's not like half the time their evil inclination is able to get them to do something. 
Because if that was the case, Rabbah couldn't think he's a Bainani. Okay. Yeah. Well, isn't Rabbah the only one who can really state what he is? Okay, so, so the answer is yes, we have to throw in two factors. One is that it doesn't just say he was always studying Torah, his, his, Torah story, his Torah study was so holy that the angel of death couldn't affect him. Now, since evil attracts death, that's a pretty good indication that he w- wasn't sinning half the time. The second thing is all we're showing now, he wasn't sinning half the time. It wasn't half sins and half things. Now, what we haven't yet figured out is is there any room to any, like, like, what is the standard, right? Maybe he was struggling in his mind and that's why he thought it was amazing. Like, we, that's not, that's, that's like, all we've established is that he clearly wasn't a person who was half the time giving into his evil desires because that wouldn't make any sense for him to also be studying Torah with such sanctity all the time. By the way, literally all the time to the point that when the angel of death wanted to kill him, there was like a whole complicated story of how he died. Um, he had to pray to God that he should die. That was, that was the way he died. Yeah. He hadn't done Young, actually, because uh, it's a complicated story. There was like, the Persians wanted to capture him and torture him, and so he decided he'd rather die than be tortured. But, yeah. But does, it, does your like, level of song for being near Russia, like, is it your actions that everyone's known, or is it what's inside? We don't know. That's what, that's, that, that's what the Altair is trying to go through the sources to figure out, like, what, what, are the, what are the guide rails of this discussion? So, one guide rail is that whatever a Bainini is, it had to be at least superficially plausible that Rabbah's a Bainani. So half sins is off the table. That can't be it. Okay. Then he goes even further. Furthermore, at what stage can a person be considered a Baini if when a man com- commits a sin, he is deemed completely wicked? Well, there you go. How many sins do you have to do to be considered to be a Russia? One. One. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was uplifting. <laughs> Parenthetically, but when he repents afterwards, he is deemed completely righteous. So, how long do you keep that Russia status? Until you. Up to you. Up to you, until you do true, whatever that is. Okay. So, basically, the rule is like this from a halachic perspective, from a Jewish law, there's a thing called a Russia. How many sins do you have to do to become a Russia? One. One. Uno. And when you do that sin, you are now a Russia until when? Until you do Jew. That was, you know. But fortunately for us, there's still an escape. We still can, like, because not all sins are on the same level, right? Maybe that's only true if you do a biblical sin. Right? Some, some sins are only rabbinic. I'm sure you have a class discussing the difference between biblical and rabbinic laws. I'm not going to get into it, but some sins are only rabbinic. Even he who violates a minor prohibition of the rabbis is called wicked, as it's stated in Yuvames chapter 2 and Nida chapter 1. Those are tractates in the Talmud. So it turns out. You get the Russia status, you get the status of being a wicked person, even if you violate a rabbinic law. So you're like, okay, what if somebody doesn't sin at all? Then he's for sure not a Russian. Then, then he's not a Russian. Then no. 
Moreover, even if he has the opportunity to forewarn another against sinning and does not do so, he is called wicked. So if someone else is going to sin and you're okay with them sinning, then what are you? Then you're a Russia. So you're a Russia if you sin, even if it's rabbinic. Even if you're not the one actually sinning, you're just tolerant of someone else is sinning. All the more so he who neglects any positive law which he is able to fulfill. For instance, whoever is able to study Torah and does not. So now, there are two kinds of mitzvahs that are called positive mitzvahs and negative mitzvahs. Have you heard this before? Okay. The basic difference between a positive mitzvah and a negative mitzvah is that a positive mitzvah is a requirement that you have to do something, whereas a negative mitzvah means that you are not allowed to do something. Um, one of the positive mitzvahs in the Torah is to study Torah. Now, I don't think I mentioned this before, and it will vaguely come up that I'm not worrying about being too politically correct. Okay? So, if you know that. Women are exempt from many positive mitzvahs. The most famous examples are the ones that are based on time. So, any mitzvah that's at this specific time, you have to do this mitzvah. As a general rule, women are exempt from. So, what would be an example of that? Tefillin. Tefillin is, tefillin is only during the days and not on Shabbos. Women are exempt from tefillin. What would be another example? Davening. What? Davening is, is a messy mitzvah. mitzvah. We're going to ignore the davening. It's very messy. Is it a mitzvah? Is it not a mitzvah? What exactly is the mitzvah? We'll ignore that. Mm-hmm. Tefillin. Anyone have any other examples of mitzvahs? Shofar. Shofar. Lulav. Yeah. What other ones? I'm not picking any of the fun ones. How about reciting the Shema in the morning? You know, there's a mitzvah to recite the Shema in the morning? Okay, so there's a, there's a mitzvah, which means right now it's by about, uh, I think it's around 9.20. But by 9.20 in the morning, a Jewish man has to recite the Shema. Okay? In the winter, in Israel, it's like by 8.30. It doesn't matter if you're tired, you still have to get up and say Shema. And then depending on where you are, like some places, like last time to say Shema was like 7 o'clock in the morning. So it means you've got to be up and say Shema. Okay? Um, so there's a whole bunch of now. There are some mitzvahs which are time that the women are obligated to. The reasons for those. What are some of the time bound ones that women are obligated to do? Shabbos. Shabbos. What? I didn't hear what you said. It's not a time bound mitzvah because it's time bound means it relates to the times of like you know day, night, um, morning, afternoon, Shabbos, weekday. Not that it has time as part of its features. That because you look at the clock, and now you have to do a mitzvah. Basically, that's the principle. So the clock or calendar. Shabbos. Well, we have shofar now that we took the Chauffeurs, women have, ex- have, have decided that they should all do it. So now women have accepted that as an obligation to do it. But biblically, there's no requirement to do that. How about eating matzah on Pesach? Yeah. Hearing, the Hearing the Megillah. Hearing the Megillah. Hanukkah candles. These, what? Fasting on Yom Kippur. Right? So there are some positive time bound mitzvahs that women are obligated, and each one has an explanation of why. There is fasting is, positive? Yes. It's a positive mitzvah. But only on Yom Kippur? Only on Yom Kippur. Okay. Now, there is one positive mitzvah which is not time bound. Um, there's actually a few. There's one that women are not obligated to, which is the study of Torah. Now, what is the obligation to study Torah? All the time. All the Torah, all the time. That's the obligation. 
So if you ever encountered a Jewish man who could be studying Torah and is not studying Torah, guess what they're doing? Well, they're, they're, they're not fulfilling a positive mitzvah. Okay. What if they said, well, I finished all of those books. The answer is, so what? did you finish those books? <laughs> and he said, but I finished all the books, which is theoretically possible. He said, okay, but that's fine. But, but, but you have five minutes now that you're not using for Torah study. So go back and review them, learn them deeper. The, the mitzvah of studying Torah as a mitzvah. Every Jew needs to study Torah for reasons we need to know God. We know what Judaism is. Studying Torah as a, as a matter of relation with God applies to everybody. But the mitzvah of studying Torah means all of the Torah, all of the time. So like in the temple, there are sacrifices that like where they take a bird and like snap its neck and there's complicated laws. Do you need to learn the Torah about the complicated laws of snapping birds' necks yeah. in the temple? Do you need to learn that? We as women? You as women. No. no. Like, you're like, I'm not really interested in learning about that. I'd rather learn about Shabbos. Like, okay, that's fine. If I say that I don't want to learn about that, that's not okay. Now, I can say I'm not prioritizing because I have to get to this other part of Torah first. That's fine. But like, if I say I finished everything and I don't want to learn that, you know, if I have five minutes and I don't study Torah and I could be studying Torah. So, what the author is saying is that if you're considered a Rasha by violating a rabbinic mitzvah, by violating a rabbinic prohibition, then if you ignore a biblical obligation, then all the more so you're a Rasha. So it turns out basically all Jewish men, almost by default, are all Rashaim. This is why the only time you're so good for our self-esteem. Okay. On the uh, question, if it's worse to transgress or fail to fulfill a positive law? Ah, so, so let, let's, uh, let me just finish reading a little bit, okay. and then we'll go. Um, regarding whom our sages have quoted because he hath despite the word of God that his soul shall be cut off. Okay. So it is plain that such a person is called wicked more so than he who violates a prohibition of the rabbis. Okay. So what's worse? Violating a positive mitzvah or violating a negative mitzvah? Because he's making an argument. Is I, have so, I have Talmudic sources that say that if you violate a Prohibition, you're a Russia. You're a wicked person, even if it's a rabbinic prohibition. Does he ever bring any sources that say if you don't do a mitzvah, you're obligated to that you're a Russia? He didn't bring a source. He brought a logical argument. He says if this makes you a Russia, then all the more so that makes you a Russia. So which has to be worse? The thing that's worse is the positive mitzvahs. Okay. But he, he brings positive Rabbinic. mitzvahs from the Torah. All right, yeah. Very good. Very good. So let me write up the argument. Okay. Then I'll say what I want to say. Then I'll say what you want to say. I don't and then know I'll respond. I, I no, no, no. Question mark. Okay. That, is a, that is a good question. Okay. Wait, is rabbinic... Um, you have rabbinic positive and rabbinic negative. Right. Okay. So this is what we... First off, this is what we have sources for. We have sources for... Okay. These are, these are all sources for... If you have a... If you, um, if you violate any of these things, then you are a Russia. Okay. So a negative mitzvah, and for negative rabbinic mitzvahs, and if you don't, do what? No, don't, no. Don't, oh, don't warn another person. Yeah. Don't forewarn. Okay. If you violate a negative, what should make this good is the Torah. 
If you violate a negative Torah prohibition, you're Russian. If you violate a negative prohibition, you're Russian. If you don't forewarn someone else from violating the prohibition, you're Russian. That there's sources for, that's in the Talmud. If you're an Orthodox Jew, well, that's just, you're stuck. Right? That's, there's nothing to do with that. What does he say? What if you violate positive mitzvah? Is there any source for that? Yes, for Torah. Well, regarding whom our sages have quoted. Well, we do know something about a positive mitzvah. About, because Torah studies especially that. Let's just talk about positive mitzvahs in general first. Does he bring a source regarding positive mitzvahs? Is that regarding the sages? No, that's about Torah studies specifically. Oh. With positive mitzvahs, the only thing he says is the negative prohibitions. If you're a Russian for violating the negative prohibition, then you're certainly a Russian for not doing the positive. So he's, this is what he's doing here. He's going from the rabbinic point, saying that's logic. Which means what's worse? Which sin is worse? Not doing a positive mitzvah or violating a negative rabbinic mitzvah? Well, if this is worse, then how does being a Russian here prove that you're a Russian over here? When you want to think about this is bad, and if this makes you a wicked person, then this must be worse. That's what he's saying. This is bad. This is worse. Wait, what did you say? Positive? Positive? What? What did you say? Positive. He's, if you start off with the assumption that a positive, not doing a positive is worse, and not doing a negative rabbinic mitzvah, then if this makes you Russia, then Lasha tells you this makes you Russia. Then you have to ask, well, why is this such so much worse? Okay. And how do we know it's so much worse? Yeah. I have a question about that. Don't you have to start with the extreme and then extrapolate from that? Right. So how if we know if we have sources for the negative is bad. How can you extrapolate from that that this one is Because we're trying to, we're trying to, being Russia is a bad thing. Being Russia is a bad thing. So I want to find the least bad thing that makes you Russia. And if that makes you Russia, then everything worse than that is for sure Russia. Okay. Let me do it, John. Okay. Let's start off with Before. Defining the minimum requirement. Okay, what's the minimum requirement? We start off saying this. What is the worst thing you can do as a Jew? This is the worst, and this is not so bad. Bad, but not so bad. The worst thing you can do like idolatry. is not do a positive mitzvah. But how do we know that? Oh, back to the question, how he knows that. But that's, he's starting off, he clearly thinks that's to be that's true. So let's start with the argument, taking that for granted, and then we'll go back to how he knows that. Not so positive. So that's the worst thing to do. What's not so bad? Violating a negative what kind? What about a Okay. Okay. So here's the thing. If this makes you a Russia, then what is this? 
You're all sorts. That's the argument. Do you find what this is the this is the most minor thing that you could do that makes you a Russia? Well, then then not doing the positive for sure makes you a Russia. But that all presupposes that this is worse than this. That not doing the positive is worse than violating the negative rabbinic Are you saying the worst one is rabbinic and biblical or only biblical? Okay. So the real issue is just positive and negative. And the way he knows this is that if you have a situation where you cannot, where you have a positive obligation and you have a negative prohibition, and you can't do both at the same time. So what would an example of that be? There's a positive mitzvah to bury dead people. Okay? There's a prohibition of Kohanim. Anyone know what a Kohanim is? You don't know what a Kohanim is right now? There's a prohibition of a Kohen coming into a lot of contact with dead bodies. So can a Kohen bury the dead person? No. No. What if there's no one else to bury the dead person other than a Kohen? Now they can. You they must. are required to. So what does that tell us? That the, the positive requirements when they contradict negative mitzvahs override them. Now it's, that's not so, so common because usually you can work around with both. But like saving a life on Shabbat? Shaving a life on Shabbat is entirely different. That's not one that's for another that's it's because of certain rules about Shabbat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Would that be the same? Also, Shabbat is not a positive, it's not a negative, it's a positive and negative together, and that's a whole separate category. But like not calling an ambulance being, like that's like a prohibition, you can't call an ambulance yeah, but, on Shabbat. Yeah, when you talk about Shabbat, Shabbat is funny because it's a positive, it's funny, negative, it's together, and it has whole separate rules. You need like something that's just, so, um, I'll give you a, 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 has everyone heard of, has anyone, it's, it's actually not as common as you think the situation you can't do that. But, um, has everyone heard of Tsaras, like the skin disease that used to be in biblical times that your skin turns white? Yeah, there's a, there used to be in biblical times people's skin would turn white, and one of the prohibitions is that if you have this, the skin condition can't cut off the skin that's turned white. Now it cut it off. So what if a baby has saras where they need to have a bismillah done? Can you cut it off? You can't cut it off. So the positive is what provides the negative. There's not that many examples of this, but all we need is a few to show us that positive mitzvahs override negative mitzvahs. And once we know that positive mitzvahs override negative mitzvahs, we know what's a bigger deal. And if violating a negative, even a rabbinic negative mitzvah, Makes you rush. So then the worst thing is not doing the positive answer. Newborns get saras. What? Newborns get saras. Right, yeah. I know it really messes with you again that saras is there for a right? Yeah. Remember what I said in the last class that I'm not mixing <laughs> the halacha with the ethics? Uh, okay. Is that like a question? I don't know, I wasn't around back then. Okay. So now the question is, well, why is not doing a positive mitzvah so much worse than doing a negative mitzvah? Okay. Why don't we, if we, if we make this a little psychological, why would a person violate a negative mitzvah? Why would you do something you're not allowed to do? Yeah, I mean, people do it, so why? why? And let's assume that you know it's wrong, you're not, it's a lack of education, I'm not talking about that. Like, you know it's wrong, you do it anyway, why? Desire. You have desire, right? You don't have any other options. Or like your other options are limited? 
Well, you, like, so, 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 so you're like really, really hungry in a foreign country and you've been there for five days, a week, five weeks, there's nothing to eat, you need something that's not kosher. Okay, but so we can just boil it down to that you have a conflicting desire. Yeah. And that, you know, how strong the desire has to be to get you to, to sin yeah. it depends on the person, right? But you have a conflicting desire. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you do a positive mitzvah? Because you're lazy. Because you don't care. It's not important to you. So here's this very, very interesting thing. What? So, so the, the, the way God looks at it, and then I'll go back, to, uh, go back to people, is that when you do a negative sin, what that means is, what that means is that your other desires, you had a hard time controlling your other desires. Which, okay, I mean, that's bad, but like, that's one thing. But if you don't do a positive mitzvah that you could have done, then that just means you don't care. So now if you put this in the context of human beings, it'll make a little more sense. There are people that you're, by this is only true if you're close to somebody. If you're not close to someone, then it's all reversed. If you're really close to somebody, say a spouse, a parent, friend, doesn't matter. You're really close to them. Do you always speak to them in a nice way? Do you, you, you sometimes like, you know, like you've got stuff going on in your life. You sometimes snap at them. Like, but people, they sometimes, you know, the, the, the complexities of life get the better of them, right? And so one of the things that it's unpleasant, it's uncomfortable, we, we don't like it when that happens to us, when someone we're close to doesn't treat us properly. But we understand they had a bad day, they were tired, they were hungry, they got too excited, whatever it is. Like, you, what happens if somebody just blows you off and you're really close to them? That, that's much more painful. Why? Because then basically saying, like, this relationship doesn't matter to me. So this verse, when it says about the Torah study, it says, during the first temple, the Jewish people were worshiping idols, they were committing inappropriate relationships. They were killing each other over monetary disputes. And God was like, look, this is bad, but you know, they have an evil inclination. But you know what else they did? They didn't study Torah. God's like, I get it. You, you have these very strong desires for forbidden spirituality and you can't control, like, like, like you have a hard time controlling yourself. I get it. It's bad, it's wrong, it's dysfunctional. But like, why don't, but, but you don't even appreciate connecting to me at all, then there's like no relationship at all. There's nothing in place whatsoever. If you talk about mitzvahs being a connection to God, not doing a positive mitzvah when you could is a statement, I don't care about this relationship. Doing a negative mitzvah saying, my other passions got the better of me, which is not an okay thing, but it's not as bad. Mm -hmm. okay. And in Kabbalah, it says that, that the, the, the harm done to the relationship in a positive mitzvah is actually much worse, that it requires basically a miracle to repair. Basically, like, think about it like this. If, 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 uh, if I miss a day of Shema, I don't get up on time and I don't say Shema because like, it's not important enough to me. I can't go back in time and say Shema again. It's like if you miss coffee with your sister, can you go back in time and then have coffee with your sister again? We learned that um, if you like to do a mitzvah, that your connection with Hashem with that mitzvah like, loses. 
It's gone. Right. And yeah, you never gone. get it back. That's yeah. so that's far worse. That's exactly like the point. Every mitzvah, like if you forget to do a mitzvah one day, you it's can, like an every day, like daven, you didn't daven one that's day. That's right. That. Whereas if you ate pork, God's like, okay, like you, we, like we can clean out the pork, okay. right? Because what? Because you're not saying there's no relationship. You're saying that there's something else got in the way. But if but if you don't do a positive mitzvah, you're saying there's no. It it is dismissing the whole connection. And that's the spiritual corollary to the halachic idea that positive mitzvahs override negative mitzvahs, which is background knowledge that the altar knows and saying, well, if doing a negative mitzvah makes you a rasha, even a rabbinic one, all the more so not doing a positive mitzvah makes you a rasha. Yeah. So, so, so here's the rule. Whenever a mitzvah, whenever a sin involves another human being, we have to have a totally separate discussion. Okay? Because then we're talking about two relationships. Relationship with God and relationship with another person. So all these things we're talking about now is let's assume no other person is directly hurt. When it's directly hurt, then, then, then your relationship with God can be perfectly fine. But your relationship with the person can be messed up. I mean, there are plenty of people who have good relationship with the people. Their relationship with God is not so great. There are people, they make it up to God's God. That, fine, I've got nothing with you, but... I, you're not whole because you'd have to make it up to them and you can, it's true if you kill somebody it's kind of hard to make it up to them <laughs> yes yes um, but that but, but, but that has to do with the, 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 the issue of their mortality not like the essential nature of a negative sin prohibition and obviously there's lots of rules and complications and things like that but that's the basic idea that that if you have that in mind then knowing that the negative mitzvahs even the rabbinic ones make you Russia, then all the more so not doing a positive mitzvah makes you Russia. Yeah. So based on that reasoning, can you say that it's worse to to not forewarn someone from from violating a negative mitzvah? Like it's worse than us violating a negative mitzvah? You could make that argument. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't put that as the lowest thing. Because since, since forewarning other people is itself a positive mitzvah, it, it, in a certain sense, yeah. By the way, you can extend. By the way, forewarning doesn't necessarily mean you yell at them. It means you do what you can. You just bird call. What? Bird call. I don't know what bird call is. Like you make the sound of a bird. No. It means you do things. It means, it means you do whatever in your honest estimation would work to get them to do the mitzvah. Which, that's why actually the mitzvah to rebuke people and to forewarn them is put next to the, next to the prohibition of embarrassing people. Because it tends to be that if you embarrass people, they tend not to listen to you. Um, there's a rare exceptions to that rule. By the way, what this means is very interesting. You know? um, if I know that there's a Jew across the street who would put on tefillin if I went and go ask, but I don't ask them to put on tefillin, then what am I? Because in that case, me asking them is... Does it extend more generally? Like, do you have a responsibility to just, like, educate yeah, Jews yeah, yeah, yeah. everywhere? Now, what ends up is you can't do everything all at once. You have to have priorities. But yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. By the way, this is so much true that, that, it, that if you have an obligation, like, this, in certain situations, it even allows you to make the brach on behalf of another person. Because your obligation that they do the mitzvah is so strong. Yeah. Yes? So in this, you're saying that, like, if... If you're more cutting yourself off if you're like not davening because it's more of a in-depth like it's a problem within you then momentarily eating a piece of pork yeah 
Yeah. Which is which is interesting because because as human beings, we often like are more as it tends to be the case that like we, the the negative mitzvahs tend to be like easier. Because it's like yeah yeah we're we're the religious community. We don't drive on Shabbos and we don't eat pork and like and that's but that's good for like creating a fence around you. But it doesn't say very much about you. Right, and the fact that I don't eat pork says a lot about like the place I, the place I'm in, the society I'm in, the culture I'm in. It it doesn't say a lot about who I am, the way it does as my attitude to getting up and davening every day and learning Torah every day and going and helping other Jews every day. That says about a lot more about me and who I am and who I'm connecting to. Okay, now obviously we're not saying that you should violate negative mitzvahs. We're just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, that makes you rush. You're just saying, from from this, it's clear that the positive mitzvahs are are certainly great, make you a rush. Okay. It is thus plain that such a person is called wicked more than violates the prohibition of the rabbis. If this is so, we must conclude that the intermediate man, the Benini, is not guilty even of the sin of neglecting Torah study. Why not? Because that's like the big worst one. No, but 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 if that's such a big sin, so maybe he's only guilty of minor sins. So this is the thing. Torah study has this weird paradoxical quality. In terms of the most important mitzvah for one's relationship with God, assuming they're obligated to that mitzvah, what would that mitzvah be? Torah study. What is the mitzvah that is the easiest not to keep? Torah study. The mitzvah of Torah study. So it turns out that if I want to say like this, somebody, somebody who never viol- never, someone who never violates the mitzvah of neglecting Torah study, certainly not doing any other sin. Because in terms of the human being's ability to do the mitzvah, that's actually the hardest mitzvah to keep. But in terms of what it says about your relationship with God, it really, really makes you rush. So going back to Rabbah for a second. If somebody never violates the mitzvah of neglecting Torah study, then they're not sinning. So much so, yeah, because so much so, but the Talmud says that there is a presumption that every Jewish man is sinning by neglecting Torah study, unless proven otherwise. Because let's think about the psychological for a second. How can you learn Torah at every spare moment? How do you do that? Like, how do you achieve that? So there are many people when when Yeshiva Bachem are younger and they take this seriously, like I'm gonna like, like very disciplined. I'm gonna use every moment to study Torah. So first off, number one, that just makes you uptight. And then that all becomes the expense of other mitzvahs you're obligated to do. So that's not good. Number two, you can't maintain that all the time. Like at a certain point, like the willpower starts to like. Are there things that you do not have to force yourself to do? Mm-hmm. See these? This thing? Yeah. Most people, especially if they're younger, what is their relationship with their smartphone? If literally, if something is not pulling them away from it, what happens? Uh, is that because they're <laughs> using their willpower to like utilize every spare moment to be on their smartphone? No. Why is that? It's addicting. It's addicting. They're so emotionally engaged and attached with it for whatever the technical reasons are, right? It doesn't really matter. That you literally need something to pull them away from it. The only way not to violate the mitzvah of neglecting Torah study is to have that kind of relationship with the Torah. And if you have that kind of relationship with the Torah, you're not sinning. You just psychologically can't be in a state of sinning. If you care so much about being connected to God that you become addicted to Torah, then 
you're not you're not speaking lashon hara. You're not you're not you're not you're not eating pork. You're not forgetting to put on. It just doesn't happen. And anybody who has to force themselves to study Torah, use willpower, is somewhere along the way not doing it. So in terms of what it says about about how sinful you are, right? If if you are do if if you're doing any sin, the sin you're for sure doing. He's not studying Torah. And if, you're not, and if you're not even doing that, then there's no sin you're doing. Because of psychologically, in order to not do that sin of neglecting Torah study, you have to become addicted to God. You have to be addicted to His wisdom. But you can't you not study Torah and also do another sin? Maybe. You could. Yeah. What I'm saying is if you're, if, you're, if you're never sinning, if you're never doing the sin of not studying Torah, then you're for sure not doing any other sin. Oh, okay. And that's exactly what the altar of his point is. Why did, what did Rabbi think about himself? He's a Bainani. And how many sins does a Bainani do? One. Zero. Zero. He has no, no. sins. And, and, include, and, and what is the easiest sin for a person to violate? The easiest sin for a person to violate is Torah. So you don't have this mitzvah, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> but no, it really is. Like, like, is that why we say women are more connected to God by default? There's differing explanations of why. That is one of the explanations. But, so, if you, if you have a man who's obligated to study Torah, and he's not wholeheartedly addicted to the study of Torah, then he's at least committing one sin from time to time, which is neglecting Torah study. And yet, at the same time, in terms of the severity of the sin, it's the most severe sin. Right. It does a lot for our self-esteem. Yeah? Why would there be an obligation it's not you can't. It's just you know, it's, it's on the upper. It's on the uh, It's in the upper bounds of your potential. It doesn't seem like it's realistic at all for anyone. You need to eat, sleep. No. Okay. So 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 I so. That's why I use the, the. That's why I said whenever you can. The question is, what does can mean? Right. So. And the way you measure can is what do you need? You need to push yourself to the Torah. You need to be pulled away from the Torah. If you always need to be pulled away from the Torah, then whenever you're not being pulled away from the Torah, you're going to be studying Torah, and that's whenever you can. In other words, th- this mitzvah can only be done if you have the right attitude towards Torah. And you could develop that attitude. It's, it's hard. Um, we're going to get, get into how that attitude gets developed. But very few people really fully attain that attitude, and therefore... If you're trying to maximize all your time studying Torah and more like using a, an approach of being disciplined, you're right. Then it's not realistic. Then you end up like make, do making stupid decisions like not sleeping and not eating or not going to work. Or you can't force yourself to do it all the time. But this mitzvah ultimately comes from having such an obsession with connecting to God that you have to literally pull yourself away from the Torah. And you can when you need to, but otherwise you just fall right back and to that's it. that's healthy? It's extremely healthy. In a session like that? Yeah. What's wrong with that? And you, you, you clearly have some reason why you think that, so ask. It just doesn't sound healthy. Why not? We have a Jewish idea that extremes are not healthy. Right? Well, explain why it's not healthy. To be obsessed with the Torah and to the point where it sounds like you can neglect other aspects But I didn't of say that. But I everything. Like they go hand in hand. Why? I thought you did say that if you are if you are studying Torah and you're 
you're, you're studying Torah, all Torah, all the time, then you are by default neglecting right. other Torah. If you try to do that with willpower, if you try to do that not because you're genuinely obsessed with Torah, the, re- the reason why it sounds unhealthy is because, the reason why it sounds unhealthy is because, is because if you, you're thinking about it as a behavior. Think about it like this. If a person, every person has to have two basic things in life. One is how I interact with what goes on around me, and then how I come back to myself. Does that make sense? Okay. An unhealthy person is basically can be reduced to one of two things. They can't, they, 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 they don't acknowledge there's outside of themselves, so they never get out of themselves. Okay. Um, and what's, that's, that's not so common, actually. The more common thing is that they don't know how to go back to themselves. They get, whatever's happening is so determined by what's around them, what's pulling at them, like say the smartphone. It's, that's why an obsession with a smartphone, it might be an obsession, but it's actually not, it's, it's, you're being pulled towards something outside of yourself. Now, we'll learn later on more explanation about this. But what makes the, what, 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 what's supposed to make the Torah important to a person is that the Torah is um, coming close to God in a very personal and deep way. I'm going to use those very vague words intentionally. If being close to God in a very personal and deep way is something that I'm truly into and I'm obsessive, and that's my, like, my, my, my home base, then... I'm going to always revert back to there. And I'm always going to be engaged in what brings me back to there, which is, let's say, for this Torah study. But the minute that relationship with God requires me to be involved in some specific activity, I have no problem going and being involved in that activity. And so what this actually looks like is a person who's very well anchored and has a good inner core of who they are, what their life is about. And they always are able to come back to that very quickly after finishing whatever activity they need to be involved in. The problem is, very few people develop that attitude of Torah so clearly so that when they try and imitate that, they end up do engaging in unhealthy things. Right? Which is why, yes, most people say, I'm going to use all my time to study Torah all the time. And, they, like, and, and, and there, by the way, there's a way to work on it. And the way to work on it is not to like, be crazy. The way to work on it is start trying to have that relationship like, with you know, one little bit of Torah at a time. and it's, It has to be cultivated. But as a person gets to that, then the Torah is not some activity they're doing, it's them being in touch with themselves. And that's why, person, well, I'm finished being myself, I'm getting ready to be somebody else, doesn't make any sense. And that, it's that, having that sense of Torah that allows a person to, to never miss the opportunity to study Torah. You just said, though, like, studying Torah is really being in touch with yourself, and you want to have a, an obsession with that, which is okay, but then that's having an obsession with yourself. No, it's wrong with having an obsession with yourself. What's so bad about yourself? You bad? What's bad about yourself? Why not? Convince me. I think, I think it's fine to be obsessed with yourself. What's wrong with being obsessed with yourself? Then you can why would you God ever, if you're obsessed with yourself, why would you ever make a brothel for anything? Because that's about being true to myself. True to myself, but I didn't do anything. Well, see, this is the whole question, which is who is yourself? 
Is your is your is your is your is your is yourself? I'll use myself. Is yourself the thirty something year thirty something year old person who's lived a certain amount of experiences and developed certain attitudes and is worried about social standing and what's for dinner? Well, then I guess that I shouldn't be obsessed with because that that's a pretty pathetic thing. But if but if the self we're talking about is some deep unity with God, then that's a different story. That becomes part. That becomes one of the main issues here. No, self is self. So, 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 so here's the problem. There's semantics is a huge issue. Okay. In Hebrew, for those of you who know the Hebrew, in Hebrew there's a word called etzem. If you speak any modern Hebrew, and I don't want you to tell me what you are in Chassidus, just modern Hebrew, what does the word etzem mean? And if you, I will get conjugated. Atzmi, atzmeich, atzmenu. What does that mean? Atzma'ut. Independent self, right. Atzmi means myself. Atzmech means yourself. Yeah, if you were to say to me, atzmecha. Yeah. So it just means self. That's what the word means. When we apply it in religion, because it's the essence of your being and the inner core, but it just means the word means self. That's what it means. Now, what's the problem? Most of the time, we're not worried about our, our true selves. We're worried about something else. Now, when you start translating stuff into English, then, you know, it depends on which teacher you're talking to and what semantics they want. But... I was one time sitting at a Shabbos table with my wife's family. They're, they're um, Russians. My, was they at? my neighbor asked my wife, what was your family in Russia? My wife was born in Russia. What, what was your family in Russia? Were they chassidim? Were they non-chassidim? And my wife says, they were communists. <laughs> they were part, members of the Communist Party. <laughs> so they don't know very much about like, how to practice um, um, Judaism. So I'm running the Shabbos table and I'm explaining to each of the different things. We get to Eish Yisrael and, um, and I explained that the, the song is a, it's a, you know, that it has many meanings. On the one hand, it's like the husband praising the wife. On the other hand, it's, it's Hashem praising the Jewish people, God praising the Jewish people. So my wife's uncle turns to his wife and says, or sorry, my, wife, my wife's aunt turns to her husband and says, how come you don't sing me poetry like this? And then he says, well, why don't you treat me like God? <laughs> but the answer to that is well why don't you act like God he's merciful and he's compassionate and he's patient like, we actually have a mitzvah by the way to emulate God did you know that's one of 613 mitzvahs yeah so, so that, by all means like you know do all the stuff you know don't be worried about being hurt so that's, be- a that's a positive mitzvah right? be compassionate like God's compassionate be kind like God's kind don't do things because you're because you need people's approval like so this is one of the issues that when you talk about behaviors, we always project what, where, what would I be doing to get to that behavior? But you have to think, okay, maybe the person in a different mindset. Going back to the start with the to really do the, for a man to really do this mitzvah, he has to see studying Torah is not an activity. Studying Torah is being in touch with himself. Which means his sense of self has to change. Understanding what Torah has to change. And it has to be really resonate with him. And then he can do this mitzvah properly. But if he sees Torah study as an activity, even an very exciting activity, then you're right. It would lead to unhealthy behavior. Okay. Can you reach that level like nowadays? It is possible. It's not easy. Can you reach that nowadays? It is possible, but it is not easy. So that's just he learning Torah as being true to himself. Yeah. And it's being true to himself... Not in like I'm doing something to be true to myself. Like this is just me being in touch with me. 
So it's like exploiting your natural tendency to revert to like whatever yourself is. Right. And, and like you're manipulating that because if you can get yourself to be connected to a Shem, I'm an Ashema, then you're exploiting the natural to mm. be in a really special place. That's right. Uh-huh. Do you know what the Rebbe did all day? Do you know what the Rebbe did all day? Besides giving out dollars? The Rebbe studied Torah all day. Oh, because every time... Yeah, all the other stuff the Rebbe like did like on the side. People don't know that. Like the Rebbe's daily schedule was Torah study. That's what he did. So when that he, was his essence. So what? I, 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 I know that, but there is a principle that, that, that we can learn lessons. But the point is like this. And the Rebbe spoke of that. That a person, that a person has to have a pl- that a person has to have a thing which is their anchor, and then another thing. So the Rebbe did a lot of stuff, and when those, he needed to do that stuff, he did that stuff, and he did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. But then he had an anchor. And the thing is that for man to do this mitzvah properly, Torah study has to be this anchor of, of being in touch with myself. Not I'm doing this really important activity that's more important than every other activity. Yeah. Um. The the the. So if you, t- if you talk about this dimension, so, and you, you could, one of, the, one of the things you can say is that in order for a man to see his true self as a godly self, that can only come through studying Torah, and a woman can do that without the study of Torah. But that idea of, of who is my true self and where do I come back to, that's still relevant to both. Okay. But by a man, it has a specific structure of how that works, and by a woman, it's say, more fluid and dynamic. What is being the truth? Well, that's what we're going to learn. It just doesn't involve learning the laws of uh, breaking birds' necks in the temple. It can. Yeah. Not as the mitzvah of it. So what, what is the mitzvah? For, oh, for, 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 I'm saying for women. But, but like the idea of being, like making yourself, your like, uh, your like anchored self is connected to God. Yeah. If learning about snapping birds' necks with fingernails is your thing, that's what makes you feel connected to God. You could totally do that. You could do that, right? Okay. But 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 then but that, that that's why I'm saying it's more fluid and dynamic. It's not like there's a fixed thing with men. It's actually there's a fixed right. prescribed thing. So much so that like if it's not going through that system, they're gonna say something is broken and wrong. Judaism for men, and just one of the things that it's important to know, Judaism for men and women is very different in the sense that men's have Judaism very much... Pers- I realize this sounds funny because there's so much luck that applies to women also, but if you think about it, a lot of the idea of, 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 of doing things to come closer to Hashem, with a man, it's very prescribed of how it has to look. And then there's this, it was with a woman, there's the sense that you give much more basic, like, guidelines of like don't go too far here don't go too far there and then anywhere in this space you'll figure out and you'll be fine um, just a, a little story to illustrate this you know what a minion is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. what's a minion? Ten, ten men who don't want to daven together <laughs> that's what a minion is I have yet to meet like okay, occasionally there's one like Are weird you person. A joke? I'm I'm not actually making a joke. That, there was is that there was, actually the definition. It's not the definition, but it's a practice. <laughs> it's not a joke, but it's a practice. The, there was there was a, there was there was a, someone like a woman who was like reform uh, whatever. So she asked a, a shliach, how does how does how does he get the minion to work? Because like by them like everyone's arguing, it's too slow, it's too fast, and nobody like likes it too much. And not enough singing. So he says, well, do you have ten people want to be there? And she says, yes. He says, well, that's your problem. 
a minion is made up of 10 people who don't want to be there, but know they have to. No, I'm serious. Like, that's, that's like, like the starting point of a minion is, okay, we have to be here. It has to work like this. <laughs> and then, like, maybe we'll like it, maybe we won't. It's a very different structure. And, like, you can go thing after thing after thing. And then the mitzvah Torah says, basically, saying, even being in touch with your deep godly self has a very fixed structure of how that has to look, of what mental activities you can and can't, should be engaged in. And with women, there's much more of the sense, like, give them guardrails so they don't, like, fall off to the cliff. But then, it's kind of very personal and independent. So it, it does create a very different flavor. Okay. All right. But for our purposes, what he's saying is violate, not, for man not to study Torah, that would mean on the one hand, he's committing a very big sin. And on the other hand, it's a very common sin. Yeah. So if Rabbah never committed that sin, what does that say? And he's a bean ben And he thinks a bane. That means a bane is someone who never sins. Never sins. Hence, Rabbah could have mistaken himself for a Benini. So now we've learned something very important. Benini doesn't sin. A Benini doesn't sin. Any sins, Can ever. Can you say that again? If Rabbah uh, thought he was a Benini, and someone who neglects Torah study is committing a very serious sin, but also a very common sin, then Rabbah could say, look, the most common sin I don't commit. So that means that a Benini doesn't sin. And we know that from even more minor sins, you're a sin. So, so any sin whatsoever makes a person into a Russia. Okay. And not only that, even if you are not technically the one who's sinning, but you could have done something to get someone else not to sin. What? Yeah, that's what comes out. Or, Isn't that uplifting? Yeah, so that worked out well. That was convenient. Couldn't it also mean that it's not about sinning? Like, it's about your nature? What? Like, like this definition of tzaddik or isn't, isn't there this whole other concept that it's, like, not about sinning? Okay, so, 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 this is, so this is very important. Independent of what you actually do, it's just about... We are, like, motivation internal. Oh, so, so, so... So let, 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 let's put this together. Let's put this together. When it said, when we, when it said, when we, when we, when we, when we said earlier that a rush is motivated by their evil nature, we said, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that they're, well, we now know what it means. The, if your evil nature's motivation is strong enough to get you to act on it, yeah. then you're a Russia. And your evil nature maybe is like taking you away from Torah study. Right, what, in whatever ways it manifests, yeah. right? In other words, if you have an evil nature, that doesn't make you a Russia. If your evil nature is capable of getting you to act on it in any way, shape, or form, or even... Any sin. Yeah, anyway, then that's what makes you a Russia. So that means... Well, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Is it okay? Like, is it normal? Is it okay for a person to, like, really, really be upset with someone else? Like, can you imagine a situation where somebody does something that really bothers you? Yeah. And like you get upset, that's okay. Of course. On what? Imagine a situation. Can you imagine a situation where you would feel like, yeah, it's understandable and justified why you got upset? Yeah. Yeah. Does that give you permission to break things? No. To publicly humiliate them? What about yourself? What? What about yourself? For personal reasons, they get but you know, we all have this, in, 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 this instinctual awareness that there is a difference between what you want to do 
and what you actually do, right? So if you want to sin, if you're motivated to sin, okay, I mean, that's one thing. But if your motivation to sin actually translates into practice, that's where you cross the red line into being a Russian. Okay. Now, what is, what is it about a person that allows them that we don't know? Right? And why is it the mania that doesn't happen? We don't know. But there's something. So basically what we've discovered is that we have no idea what a mania is. Right. Somehow as a person who doesn't sin. Yeah. And it's clearly not just that they just have, they just willpower the way through it. Because that obviously doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. But we know that it's, it, 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 it's something about your, your, your willingness to engage in behavior. So, um, we said when a person repents after doing a sin, he's deemed completely righteous. So, is it like in your first moment of existence, you're a Benoni, and then once you've sinned once and become a Russia, then you just bounce back and forth between Russia and Sadiq, and you never we, get back we, to Benoni? No, because we don't have the ability to answer that. We need to finish the paragraph, next paragraph, well, after the note, there's another paragraph. <laughs> okay. Once we read that paragraph, then we can answer that question. Okay. We're missing information. Okay. okay. So, let's... Let's summarize what we now know, okay? If you have a desire to sin, or you don't care enough about mitzvahs, so much so that it actually affects your behavior, what is that called? If you're only motivated by good, what's that called? Tzadik. If you're neither of those two things? Be'inuni. That's what we know so far. But that's not, that's not a lot of information, right? There's clearly, so there's clearly something different going on psychologically in one kind of person than another person. Now, the other thing that we also have to throw in, mind, throw, throw in there is that the tzaddik and the rasha both come in two forms. Right? We don't know what that means either. And we also don't know how much it's in our control to change those things. Now, I want to start this now because we have five minutes left. Yeah. Well, I'm still kind of confused because Rabbah says, I am a Benini, and then Abai says, well, no, that would make it impossible for anyone to live. But then Your standard is too high. And then at the end, it says, okay, we conclude that the intermediate man does not have any sins, and that's why... Rabbah could have made a mistake in thinking he was a Benini. But why is that a mistake? Because the difference between a Benini, because what we learned is that it, is that Sadiq it's the tzaddik as someone who's only motivated by good, mm-hmm. right? In other words, is it possible that you desire to do the wrong thing and then just don't do it? Yeah. Okay. So if you never do the wrong thing, even though you want to, what would you be? A bane What if you never want to do the wrong thing? And you're a tzaddik. But so is that an obvious difference that you can easily tell? No. That's why Rabbah could make a mistake. But how does Abaya correct Rabbah and be like, no, remember, you have never wanted he would say, to do He'd be like, he'd be like, remember, you're like the head of the whole Jewish people. Uh-huh. You are the one who's channeling God, God's presence into the world. Clearly you are not just the Bainami. That's his point. But Rabbi's saying, I have sometimes wanted to do not good things. Or no. Well. Like it sounds like that's, that's what Rabbi's saying, right? He's saying so, like, yeah, so, I've never so, sinned, so, but I'm not entirely motivated. So, so I, I will give you the answer, even though we're going to get to it later. Do you always know what you want to do? No. No. Like that's not something you always know, right? There's layers and layers of desires and motivations, right? 
So is it legitimate to think that I probably want to do something wrong even though I can't like think of it? Like, when was the last time you really wanted to punch somebody? Like, I can't think of it. Maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe deep down in my unconscious. I don't know. Like, people get angry. They, they, they have these desires, but I can't think of right now. So could he like just assume that he probably has those desires because he presumes that he's probably like everyone else? Because he can't think of a specific instance. And that's... Because when you're talking about motivations, there's layers and layers of your psyche. And we, like, we, if we pay attention, we know what we're doing. But even if we pay attention, we don't always know what, what's motivating us and what we're really feeling and what's under the one layer of our unconscious, the next layer of our unconscious. I feel like it paints Rabbi as not being a deep thinker. It does. It does. Do you know why? This is very important. We'll end on this. He was not a deep thinker. Rabbi? Yeah. If there was a, there was one particular subject he was not a deep thinker on. Himself. Himself. Chassidus defines humility as not thinking too deeply about yourself. Like you just don't find yourself to be the most interesting thing in the universe. Mm-hmm. Why is the obsession okay? What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so <laughs> What? You just said obsession with yourself is good. This is one of the deep tensions in, in, in life, is that humility is a good thing. But humility means not being obsessed with yourself. Humility is a good thing. So it's good to not be obsessed with yourself, but it's also one second, one second, good one second, to one second, be one second, one second, one second. So let's just think about this. Is it good to talk to people? Sure. Is it good to have quiet time? Yeah. Can you do those at the same, at the same time? No. You have to find some way of working them together? Okay. Is it good not to... So humility, it's a trait, and it's a good trait. And that, the humility of the trait is just you don't find yourself to be the most interesting thing in the universe, so you don't think too deeply about yourself. On the other hand, is a lack of being in touch with yourself a good thing? No, it's, it's good to be in touch with yourself, right? That gives you a sense of integrity and principles. Okay. Is there a tension between those two values? Yeah, and that's part of the difficulty in life. That's why we don't teach children how to be people. We teach children how to behave because they're not capable of, of managing two conflicting values. We tell them, do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. But then you become an adult and say, yeah, you have to be humble and you have to be true to yourself. And you have to figure out how that you can bring those two things together because if you try to be too humble, you're not going to be true to yourself. If you try to be too true to yourself, you just become a narcissist and obsessed with yourself in a very superficial um, uh, um, coarse way, and that, that and, and that's a, that's a thing of and and many things in Judaism have you have two values, and they conflict, and you have to figure a way of integrating them together. What if you have two values that are exactly equal and opposite? So the starting point, the starting point, the practice is you make time for one and time for the other. But if, one second. Okay. As a person becomes deeper and deeper. One of the things that happens is that things which appear to contradict on one level of your experience don't contradict on another level. For most people, including myself, these two things, you can't figure out how to do both. So the healthy thing to do is, most of the time you should be humble. From time to time, like say, the month of Elul, you should spend some time obsessing over who am I really, what is my life really about, who am I really? and then go back to being humble. If you do that slowly, the tension between these things starts to dissolve very slowly. You can get to a point 
where you, where you naturally don't, aren't obsessed with yourself because you don't think you're the most interesting because you're very, very humble. And at the same time, you're, you're, that's the right word, it's where we get lacks of words. You're so, you, you know who you are in such a deep way, you don't even need to think about it. That's very rare for people to Why achieve. Why is the answer to two things that are equal and opposite not nothing? Because the idea is that there's one God. And so the one God, when you try and see God in one way, it looks this way. And when you see him in another way, it looks another way. And as you get closer to the truth, those two things come together. It's like... If you see something from the top, it looks one way. If you see it from the side, it looks different. And if your mind can process three dimensions, you realize that those are not a contradiction. That takes time. And there's lots of things like that. And this is one of them. Um, I, I'll tell you very, very quickly. There was a rabbi I know when he became a, 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 a rabbi, like a community rabbi. He was told by another rabbi, he says, you have to stop being humble. You have to stop being humble. Why? Because your opinion is the one that counts. And so if you don't think your opinion is the most interesting one, then, you, then basically you don't exude any confidence in what you say, and your whole community is just going to fall apart. Yeah. And he says, but what about humility? And he says, the world doesn't want a humble rabbi. The world wants a rabbi who, who, who like when he says something, they, have, they, they, they feel that he, he's confident in what he said. Now, they want the opposite extreme, the point that he's so obsessed with himself, he doesn't care about anyone else. No, but you have to know the person who was before. The amount of humility he has before is the guy gets up and he says, you look at the rabbi, so the rabbi thinks, like, I don't know, what do you think? Like, it's not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. That's part of the, that's part of the, that, that's part of how this contradiction gets resolved is that as you work on, on those two things, you develop a deeper sense of self where it's not a contradiction. Yeah.